All right. Welcome back to the Lindroth Hockey Podcast. You're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew Jim Lindroth. Dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing this weekend? Doing great. Um, we've got a very, very cool episode today, one that we've been very excited for. Um, it's a huge honor to announce our next guest here on the show this today, former Providence and Boston Bruins player Bobby Robbins. Bobby played in the AWHL and the USHL from 2000 to 2002. Uh, once he turned 18, he committed to UMass Lowell and played it until 2006. He then went undrafted but did sign his first deal with the Ottawa Senators and began his professional career between the AHL and the ECHL, playing from the span of between 2005 to 2008. Later, he flew across the world and spent time overseas in the EIHL and Austria's Premier Hockey League until 2010. Bobby returned to North America and grinded his way through the ECHL and AHL until 2014, when his hard work finally paid off and made the opening roster for the Boston Bruins. Please welcome our special guest, Bobby Robbins, man. Thank you for yeah, joining us today. So How are you? Yeah, thanks, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well today up in Minnesota, and it's five degrees out here, and it's, uh, so it's a warm day. I got my shorts on and ready to chat with you Southerners. All right. Awesome, All right. Well, welcome. Welcome. So, Bobby, I think it would be a good idea to kind of talk about, take us to, um, well, first of all, you and I share that connection. We actually have uh, UMass Lowell graduates. We just found that out a little bit before we came on air. And then you signed with um, Ottawa. Why don't you kind of take us from there into your AHL and your decision to go overseas? And then we'll kind of maybe ask some questions about that. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I went to UMass Lowell and, and was just a really hardworking guy. Came in my freshman year and and was just another name on the roster, not, not a big deal or anything, and didn't play my first six games. So I was a healthy scratch. The worst term in hockey is when you find out you're a healthy scratch. <laughs> means you're healthy, you're on the roster board, but the coach scratches your name off. I always picture that's what it meant. <laughs> and uh, was, a, was a healthy scratch and was just looking at my life, and I was like, what am I doing? You know, I could, should, I, should I have gone to this school or that school? I had some, some options, but I, I decided to come to – the UMass Lowell and being hockey East, knowing that it was one of the premier leagues in the country. And I just had this moment in my freshman year where I was sitting around, I was complaining and kind of bickering about the coach and making excuses. And I just learned this lesson. I got dialed in and I said, you know what? I'm not going to complain ever again. I'm not going to, I'm not going to make excuses. If coach isn't going to play me, my coach was Blaze McDonald. I was like, if Blaze isn't going to play me in these games, I'm showing up to practice on Monday and I'm just going to be running guys. I'm going to be playing like it's game seven uh, of the Stanley cup finals. If I'm not going to play practice is my games now. So I just showed up to practice and I had this new mentality and, uh, you know, be, you're a freshman coming into this big program and these seniors are looking like grown men out there. And I still felt like a boy, but I was like, you know what, I'm going for it. And, and just had a, an epic practice, ran a few guys over, smoked the captain, laid them out. And like, we just, <laughs> playing with snarl, taking the puck to the net and getting in some scrums and practice. And, you know, the next weekend I was in the lineup and I, I think that really defined my career of how I needed to play. And I realized I was like, can I play like this every day? That was the question I asked myself. I was like, yeah, I, I this is the way I have to play every day. Cause I'm just, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I got to do something that stands out. And so I just really started playing aggressively with that snarl and had always been that player, but at college, I really embraced it. And, you know, we're, we're playing against some big time hockey teams, Boston college, New Hampshire, Maine, BU. And I was just out there 
know and feeling like Man, I can be out here. I can play with these guys and, and really got my confidence going and started my training and got awesome coaching and, and strength training at UMass Lowell, uh, worked with Ed Manti. He was our strength coach. He was amazing. He really transformed my, my body and my athleticism. He filled, you know, filled me out. I put on 20, 25 pounds of muscle in four years. And I finally, my senior year just became a, a, a man out there, you know, I felt like a machine and, and really felt like a real athlete and ended up having this, you know, just climb the ranks every year. Sophomore year got a little better. Junior year got a little better. Senior year had this breakout season where I was the captain of the team. I was the leading scorer, male student athlete of the year, you know, all these plaques and trophies and, and accolades and ended up leaving school early and went to go play with the Binghamton Senators in the American Hockey League. So I, I left school and played 16 games there and, and really showed that I could play at that level. And then that summer ended up signing a contract with the Ottawa Senators as a, um, as a free agent undrafted. So, so what was, what was that like uh, in the preparation of going into that? So undrafted, obviously there was a tryout, but they were watching you because of Bingham, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. So they'd been watching me in Binghamton for those, the five weeks I'd left school. I came back and I finished school. I ended up graduating with a degree in English writing. So I, I finished my school and then I, then it was official. I turned pro signed my contract and I went up there. I was like, I'm making this team. I had this mentality, this warrior mentality, but I knew that because I was a checker, I knew that when I got to pro hockey, that fighting was going to be an element. And I had, I fought in junior and I was a pretty tough guy and a uh, pretty feared fighter, but I hadn't fought in four years at college. And, you know, if, if we can be honest on this podcast here, I was really scared. I was terrified to do it, but I was like, I, this is my destiny. I got to do this. And I was like, I'm, you know what? I'm going to camp. I'm fighting Chris Neal and I'm fighting <laughs> Ryan McGratton. Wow. I'm fighting wow. them both. I was like, wow. period. Like this is my chance. And I went to, I went to Ottawa, had a, had a good training camp, played well, but I, I saw Chris Neal and I saw Brian McGratton and I was like, these guys are, they're on another level. And I didn't, I don't know if I was at that level, but I didn't see myself at that level. So I think it was a bit about my, my confidence and how I, my identity and myself, I didn't see myself as that player. I kind of put those guys on a pedestal and, and I chickened out. I just didn't do it. And everything in my heart was saying, you got to fight these guys. Like, and I was just playing, I, I ran, I was running guys. Like I, I ran Joe Corvo one time and in training camp and just really laid him out. And I remember he got back to the bench and was, he's yelling. He's like, who's going to fight that Bobby Robbins out there. <laughs> and then one of the veterans spoke up. He's like, why don't you fight him, man? And so I was just kind of like, I couldn't make that step into asking a guy to fight. And that would actually carry with me for the next couple of years. Uh, you know, I didn't make the team. I played two exhibition games, I ended up getting sent to the American league, which is the AAA level for people who aren't that familiar with hockey, uh, the farm team for the Ottawa senators, the Binghamton senators. And as I was there, I played all 80 games and fought like seven times. But I saw quickly that that was my role, that I was going to be a checker and a fighter. And I was, I still didn't want to be that. I had just come off of, you know, leading my team in scoring and D1. And I didn't want to be that at all. And, and you know, if you really look in my heart, I was really scared to be that because I didn't see myself as that. It's, it's a really a terrifying thing, really, if you think about it. And yeah. so I, I just kind of chickened out and I played hard hockey, but I didn't, I only went like 95% in 
and I didn't do it. And there was always this regret that I was scared to fight. And as I turned pro, I really got into just the lifestyle of pro hockey, of the party scene and, and drugs and alcohol and girls. And so I was, I was really just feeling, I was feeling an emptiness inside of myself is really what I was doing now that I realize it. But part of that emptiness was feeling that fear that I had, um, that I was just not able to be that role who I was really destined to be. So given the, the fear aspect, then how did you uh, prepare yourself mentally and like before a game? I mean, did you know maybe the fight was going to happen? I, mean, I know sometimes in a hockey situation, it's you're protecting a teammate after a big hit. But how did you prepare yourself to be that? I mean, that feared enforcer. I mean, you were one of the toughest guys in the AHL during that time. So how did you prepare yourself mentally for that? Yeah, um, early in my career, you know, I was when I was playing the, with the Binghamton Senators and even the next year in the East Coast Hockey League with the Elmira Jackals, I was known as kind of a tough guy. And I think I was feared. And when I fought, I would fight some big guys and I, I would do well, but I wasn't really doing it for real. There was like, like I said, I wasn't all in on it. And there, there was that fear. So like when I would prepare for a game, I knew the guy who I was supposed to fight. It was pretty obvious. You know who your kind of your equal is out there. I knew it. And I was like, today's the day I'm going to fight this guy. And I just, I, I really couldn't do it. I, the fear really left me paralyzed and uh, unable to do it. And so um, I, I never really reached my full potential. And I let that fear, I don't, I don't know what it was, if it was a fear of failure, or just a fear of losing, but I, I let that fear consume me. And then, and then uh, as a result of that hockey became like number three or four on my priority list where I could say, well, I got all this other stuff where before my senior year at UMass Lowell, it was, it was my prior, it was my number one thing. And, you know, later in my career, I would get back to that, but early in my career, and I was just, a, I was just a scared kid. I was addicted to all kinds of stuff. And um, I wasn't, I wasn't really a pro yet. I don't think. So you, you get moved down to the ECHL, which is for our listeners, uh, sort of like the double A of, of, of hockey. And then you make the move to go overseas. What, um, what led you to that decision? What was going on with your life then? Yeah. I mean, my, my life was pretty chaotic at this point. I mean, where, where I was at, I was pretty much, I, I was spiritually just dead on the inside and, and spiritually bankrupt and um, filling myself with all kinds of, of chemicals. And I had a lot, I was hopelessly addicted to chewing tobacco was my big, my big thing. And I was getting into, you know, alcohol and pills and painkillers. And, and looking back on it now, I was just trying to fill that emptiness and that void that I had in me and to, and to cover that fear that I had. And so I actually had a really uh, big half second half of my uh, second year pro with the uh, Elmira Jackals. I got called up to like three different American league teams, didn't stick, but started to really come into my own and ended up, you know, late in, late in that season getting, um, ECHL player of the week and like was putting up numbers and we had a big playoff series against the Reading Royals. And so there were some teams, I know the Manitoba Moose and the American league were, were offering contracts to me. And I just, I didn't want to be that anymore. I didn't want to, I didn't see myself as that player. And I was probably just running if I really look back on it. And I ran to Europe because I knew there wasn't going to be fighting over there. And I was just done with, with the grind of the minor leagues here. I saw, I saw that climb. I saw what it would take to get there. And I just justified it within myself. I said, that's not what I want. Really. It was what I wanted, but I just kind of, kind of let that fear overtake me. And, and it was an easy move for me to go overseas. And I signed with the Belfast giants and, you know, I didn't fight over there. Uh, 
maybe a handful of fights, but I was just more of a player over there. And that's, that's really who I wanted to be. So I was like, you know what, I'm okay with playing in Europe. And I, that NHL dream doesn't mean anything to me anymore. I kind of told myself that, but really I always held a little resentment and a little shame inside of my heart that I had given up on that NHL dream so easily. Well then, so what, what made you then suddenly change that attitude and your priority to make it hockey, to come back to the AHL and then eventually within, well, what was it, four years you made it to yeah, the but, NHL? But, but I've got a couple questions for Bobby before that. So, I mean, you went over there and you played over in Belfast and you tore it up. You had like 46 points in 43 games. So you are just tearing it up over there. And then you, um, looks like you played for a Danish team, but they had some financial trouble. And then you uh, played in, in Austria. What was it like to play over there compared to AHL, ECHL over in North America? I mean, the hockey, the hockey is a lot different. I mean, in the, in the, in the UK league, the EIHL, um, it's, it's a similar style to how we play over here in North America. Um, there's fighting, there's hitting, there's a lot of Olympic sheets, but um, the level is pretty aggressive. I would say it's, it's a lower level. It might be, you know, East coast hockey league level um, over there, or maybe a little less. And so I was, I went over there and, and was just able to be a player and, and I played well and, and was just getting points. Like, and I think the main, the main reason why that happened is because I didn't have the fear of fighting in the back of my head. I was just like, I'm not going to fight. And I had guy, there's heavyweight fighters over there in that league. And they were asking me to fight. And I was like, no, man, I would just say no. And I'm not a fighter. And, and so I was trying to redefine myself and redefine my role as a player, as a power forward who could, who could put up points and, you know, had success and then ended up dealing with injuries that year. Ended up, I was actually in a fight the guy, uh, Andre, Andre Payette, big, a big tough guy. I was finally, I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to fight him. And throughout that whole year, I was dealing with that, the aspect of being scared to fight too. I'm like, I know I got to fight this guy. I got to fight this guy. He'd been chasing me around all year and I would just been a coward. And, and finally, one day I said, I'm going to fight him. And I ended up um, dislocating my shoulder in the fight, trying to rip my right arm out of his grip. My arm, my shoulder pops out of socket. And I, I go, Oh, my shoulder. And as soon as I said that I ate just a pie in the face oh. a sandwich <laughs> drops me on my back. He lands right on me on my shoulder and he's like growling in my face. I'll never forget it. And I was like, I was like, Oh, my shoulder's out. And I remember this guy like Andre Payette, he's, he was known as just a, a menace out there. And um, I'll never forget in the middle of this pile of referees and sweat and blood and a dislocated shoulder. He's like, we're like nose to nose growling he's in my face. And he's like, you didn't have to fight me, Robbins. You didn't have to fight me. And I was <laughs> like, but I, but I did, I just, I knew I had to. And, um, but I, yeah, so I, I ended up coming back home to Wisconsin to uh, recover from my surgery. And I ended up meeting my wife uh, right across from Lambeau field in green Bay. And so that was a big moment for me. You ask how things started to change. I just always saw myself as this renegade on the road, this road warrior and, my life, I didn't see anything outside of the next, the next hockey season. I was like, all right, this is where I'm at this year. I'm just going to live it up. And I was really living that party lifestyle and, and was really in that moment. And then all of a sudden I met this girl, Samantha, and I was like, I think things are different here. And I want to, I want to marry this girl. And I'm starting to think about my life. I'm like, what's, what's really happening here? How am I going to provide for this, this girl financially and stability? And so I ended up signing a pretty good contract in the Danish league 
and things were looking good. I was living in Copenhagen, Denmark in this cool apartment above this huge mall and like start really starting my, uh, my European career. I felt like that year in Belfast was to get my foot in the door in Europe. And now I just wanted to start climbing up the ranks in the European leagues and things just fell apart in Denmark and the team ended up, this was right at the, the economy collapse in 08, 09. And the team ran out of sponsorship money. They fired all their import players, their North American guys. And I just bounced around for the first time, you know, that year in Belfast was looking good. I got that contract. And then all of a sudden things started falling apart. Like one, one step after the next things were falling apart. And I ended up signing up in a, for a team in the Austrian league, which is actually a step up in leagues in Yesenitze. And it was pretty awesome. I went there, I'm living on a ski hill on a, on a mountain and a ski lodge, like in Kranstador, uh, Slovenia. Life's good. We're living in a big ski lodge, a chalet with like uh, endless buffets and like gourmet <laughs> living. And it's the real deal. And I was like, this is the living the life. I got all of my pictures on Instagram and Facebook and all and every, everyone's envious of me, but inside man if i really look inside under that in that rib cage in my heart and those ventricles i was really broken i was still addicted to all kinds of stuff and i was i was just you know uh, spiritually bankrupt and and always had that resentment I'm like man why did i give up why did i give up and it, i ended up not having the year i wanted to i was like i was trying to play hard aggressive hockey like i did in the uk and i was running guys and and they would I'd blow a guy up and he'd be laying on the ice for 10 minutes, just on a huge hit and a, a clean, nice hit. And I'd get suspended for five games. And I'm like, and all of a sudden I got suspended for three games. And I think people thought I was kind of a goon in this league. And, and even though I was like, I'm not fighting, I guess I think I fought a couple of times. Um, but I had this stigma about me that always followed me that I was this tough, tough hockey fighter and, and checker. And so after that year, I, there was just no teams calling. Right? It was like a fourth year pro. I don't have any contracts. Like, what am I going to do now? And that's when I really reached this area in this moment in my life where I was at, uh, at a decision point. Do I quit hockey or do I keep going forward? So how did you get hooked up uh, coming back to North America and, and sign with uh, AHL teams? So it's, you know, it's, it's a crazy story, but I – I was living back in Wisconsin. Now I'm, now I'm with this girl and you know, we're, we're living together. She's working at a hospital and my life just starts falling apart. You know, like the, my life in Austria is done. Um, don't have a contract. came off a really frustrating year. Didn't play much. Just kind of sat on the bench. I think they wanted me just to be a goon, like to go out there and fight the other tough guy. And I came back home. I'm like, what am I going to do? Like I got, I got no, I got nothing. Do I go back to the East coast hockey league? I don't want to do that. I don't want to fight anymore. You know, do I go back to Belfast? I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't, you know, there it's, it's a big party scene in Ireland. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but the Irish like to party and, and drink pretty heavily. And so <laughs> at this moment, and I, you know, I was living that life. So I was like, I don't trust myself over there. I want to be, this is the first girl. Like I want to marry this girl. I want to be faithful to her. And there's a lot of skeletons in the closet there in Belfast. And, so I'm just like, what do I do? And as I'm thinking through all this, you know, I, I'm just kind of getting deep into my addictions of tobacco and, and marijuana and just numbing myself over and painkillers. And, and all of a sudden I had this growth on the inside of my mouth and I've been chewing tobacco now for 11 years since I was 16, 17 years old. And I'm a, I'm an all in kind of guy. So I have really one speed and I was 
So I'm going to chew two, chewing tobacco. I'm going to chew all day long. So I was chewing two cans a day, grizzly wintergreen. And all of a sudden I had this like this spot in my mouth that looks really nasty enough so that I show my girlfriend at the time who's my, my wife. Now I show my mom who's a nurse and they're both like, you need to get into the doctor. Like that doesn't look good. So I'm starting to freak out now. I'm like, am I going to get my, am I get, do I have cancer? Like, am I going to die? Am I going to get my right. face cut off? Right. And so I go into the doctor and, and they're like, you know, we have to run a biopsy on this. This doesn't look good. So they clip a piece of my cheek out on the inside of my cheek. And they're like, you know, we'll get in touch with you in four days. And so I, I walk out of that place. And at this place, I, at this point in my life, I'm an atheist. I just have no spiritual connection of no reality of who God is and what he's doing in my life. But I remember I walked out of that hospital. I looked up at the sky. I remember I looked right up at the clouds and I just said, please get me out of this one. Oh, please get me out of this one. Like when it really hit the fan, I looked up and I, I just said that. And at that point, I was like, I don't even know who I'm saying that to. There's nothing up there for me. And, but I ended up going home and, and for the first time in my life, I was able to quit tobacco. I was, I never was able to quit before. It was this huge piano on my back that I carried around my whole life. And I went through this process and I have a real heart for people who are trying to quit tobacco. And it's, you know, I, I found this technique of, of the cold Turkey technique, three days of pretty much hell on earth. You're going to experience a physical withdrawal. If you can get through that 72 hours, the nicotine's out of your bloodstream and now, now starts the mental withdrawal. So I just started on this process. Uh, I went to this website called quitsmokeless.org, quitsmokeless.org, if anybody is looking to quit tobacco. And it's kind of an online support group. I jumped in on this. It's a bunch of guys who are quitting tobacco together at the same time. And by the grace of God, I was able to quit tobacco. And a couple of days later, I got the phone call. I was like, this is it. Here's, here's my fate. Am I going to lose half of my face? Am right. I going to die of cancer? Because if I can be honest with you, I'd rather just be dead than lose half my face. Yeah. And I pick up that phone and they say the, the biopsy came back negative. And I was like, okay. I, I remember that, that bargain, uh, you know, I just, that plea of that prayer. I said, if you get me out of this one and I just, I was like, I'm not going back. And I started, started this, and that was really the catalyst that started this transformation in me. That I was already late in my hockey career, four years in. I'm 29 years old and I just got, I quit tobacco and I got started just running and I got in the best shape of my life. And I, I realized that tobacco had been holding me back. Like it was affecting me cardiovascularly. And I started running. I was just doing sprints and, and I was just running back and forth. And I was like, man, I'm not getting tired. Like what's going on here. And I remember in my hockey career, I always was the hardest working guy, but I always felt like I had to work harder than everybody else. I just figured it was because I was a big guy. You know, I, I ran around at 6'1", 220. So I was a big, big dude for a hockey player. But then I finally, it dawned on me. I realized that it was, I'd been poisoning myself for 11 years. And I got really mad. And I just started running sprints, hard, hard sprints, running shuttle runs in the park every day and doing push-ups and body weight workouts. Like not even knowing really how to train and not training with a trainer. And there is a moment like early in my career, I used to say this thing. I'd repeat it over and over. I would say, I can make it to the NHL. I will make it to the NHL. I can, I will, I can, I will. And that all stemmed back from our locker, stemmed, stemmed way back from our locker room in, in Lowell at UMass Lowell. We had a, a sign that said, I can, I will. And I remember I looked at that one day between my junior and senior year 
and my teammate Kim Bramvold, the Norwegian assassin. This guy was a big, big Norwegian defenseman. He's now the skills coach for the Boston Bruins, of all things. He told me, he said, Bobby, if you double the amount of goals you just scored your junior year, you'll be in the NHL next year. And I had scored nine goals. I was like, I only have to score 18 goals in the NHL. Like, wow. (laughs) And I ended up scoring 13, but signed an NHL deal. Um, But I remember from that moment on, my, all my, my senior year, I started saying, I can, I will, I can, I will into my first year before I started saying it. And then I stopped saying it when I was playing in, in the East coast hockey league, I stopped saying it when I went to Europe, but as I was running back and forth one day, I just got, I was so frustrated and I just ran as hard as I could until I couldn't go anymore. I just stopped and it collapsed and I was puking and, and it just bubbled up out of me. I said, I can make it to the NHL. And I was like, Whoa, where did that come from? What was that all about? And that's where that seed was planted. I, I was like, I think I can do it. At this right. Point, Cause during that time, I mean, you, you had, you had pretty much told yourself, I mean, there is no way at that point, right. Especially when you were going through the troubles with tobacco and then the, the, the you know, uh, overseas not working out and coming back here right there yeah there was no way it was I mean it was impossible but I I had this belief in myself and I was like I think I can do it because I was looking around and all the all the big heavyweights from the early 2000s like the lockout happened in 0405 those big like one-dimensional goons were getting phased out of the game so now the heavyweights were kind of like the middleweights of when I started pro hockey and I was like the fourth line guys are hard checkers who can play a regular shift but can fight too. I was like, I'm that guy. I can play like, you know, I'm, I was a bubble guy between the AHL and the NHL. I was like, I think I'm, I'm there. If I add fighting, that's going to get me there. And so I started, you know, making calls and really nobody, nobody was willing to take a chance. Nobody believed on me and and believed in me. And I just said, you know what? Like, I'm just going to go on a, on a week contract to the Bakersfield Condors. They decided to, to offer me a contract. And I decided I was going to go play. And in the East Coast Hockey League, I'm a pretty good player. Like, I'm a first or second line guy. But I was like, I'm going to play hard hockey, and I'm just going to fight the heavyweight on every team. And I'm going to become – I'm going to mold myself into that player. And I know that if I want to get good at fighting, I'm just going to have to fight all the time. So did the fear go away at that point then? Because it seemed like now you were – taken on the challenge of fighting. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, you're not afraid at this point to throw him down. Yeah, (laughs) that's what it seemed like. I, I was still afraid. The fear was still there. But now that catalyst of quitting tobacco, I was like, if I can do that, because it was a huge, huge addiction in my life. It really controlled my whole life. And, you know, the, the aspect of getting my fix and then the aspect of hiding my fix and the deception that is around addiction. When I overcame that, I was like, I can do anything. And so I, I was able to co- finally confront that fear. And I trained, I trained with a pro boxer. I trained MMA, you know, in Green Bay with those, those guys there, those animals at the, uh, at Green Bay, I'm at mixed martial arts gym. And I learned how to fight for real and how to throw real punches. And I was like, I'm doing this. I don't care. At this point I was like, I had nothing to lose in my life. I was like, I'm going to fear or not, I'm going for it. And I'm going to attack this with everything. I'm, I'm going to, I'm willing to die for this. Like I was really willing to go all in instead of that 95%, it was a hundred percent. So you get, uh, you're in Bakersfield, you get loaned to Providence, correct? And then, of course, the next season, uh, you earn your way to a spot in Providence. And was it 2013, you, like, 316 penalty minutes, you, you, you were just rocking it as 
as the enforcer checker guy in the AHL, right? And you had won the most penalized player award that year yeah. Uh, for, <laughs> yeah, 316 penalty minutes. Yeah, John 316. That was my 316 PIMS I got. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So I didn't know it at that time, the significance of that number, but we'll get to that. Um, yeah, I made it, you know, established myself as a player in the East Coast Hockey League, got really good at hockey, got better and better, and then um, got really good at fighting, ended up next year playing in Chicago in the East Coast Hockey League uh, under Steve Martinson, who made it to the NHL as a fighter. And he was a great, great coach and mentor for me. And he, he was one of the few guys who believed in me. He said, Bobby, you can make it. He's like, goalies and fighters can make it late in their career. He's like, I made, I made it in my thirties in my when I was 30. And so he was really pushing this for me. And, and I ended up getting called up to Providence and just something about it. I was just a Bruin from, from right away. Like my, my identity as a hockey player, that hard nosed player really resonated with the organizations and with the fans in Providence. And yeah, that year it was actually the lockout. And I think 2012, 2013, I led the entire earth in fighting majors with 41 fights um, throughout preseason and postseason and the regular season and really just got good at the craft, like fought everyone. And, and, you know, those some big boys in the American league and was out of kind of took me a while to really be able to hang in there and just kept getting better at the craft. And then um, after that season ended up signing a two-year deal with Boston, getting a two-year NHL contract was just to see that happen at 31 years old was mind blowing for me to see it all come together after five years of, you know, five years before really having that goal and then going for it and just seeing getting a little bit better every single day how that adds up over time. So, yeah. what was, so what was your reaction then? I mean, did they pull you into the office and said, Hey, we're, we're going to offer you, a, you know, an NHL contract. Cause I know you had signed one with Ottawa previously, but this was now your big chance to, to, you know, your second chance to make it to the big league. So how did that occur? And what was your reaction at 31 to get that NHL contract? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty amazing. Really. I really, I look at my hockey career. Like I had two hockey careers, my first four years where I just kind of wasted it away and in fear and, and everything that the world had to offer. And then my second career, my last four or five years when I was really dialed in and I became a, a legitimate pro, like a good pro. And so those first couple of years I was chasing contracts, like, you know, our team's going to sign me. It's now July, August. I still don't have a contract going to tryouts. And you're, there was so much uncertainty. And then, and then the, the last half of my career, when I was in Providence, when I got called up there from the East coast, before that year even ended, I had already signed my next contract. So now they're coming to me and saying, Hey, we want to sign you for next year. And so I signed the contract for next year, the next year, you know, Hey, we want to sign you again. I signed another one. And then before that year was even over, that's when the contract was offered with the NHL. And it was like, Hey, we want to sign you to a one-year contract. And at this point I have an agent and there were other, there are, now there's other teams interested too. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Like I'm negotiating from the other side of things instead of being like, Oh, please take me. Like I'll give it everything I have. Now it's like, all right, well, who's going to, what, who do I get to go to? And, and so that was when we were having a pretty good playoff series um, in the, in the American league against uh, Hershey and Wilkes-Barre and just had a really great series and showed that I could play American league playoff hockey, which is a, which is a step ahead. I think it, for me, it was always just proving that I could play out there. Like they knew I could fight I, at this point. I was, a heavyweight fighter and could fight anyone in those leagues. Um, but they wanted to see that I could play. So 
But after that series, we held off on that contract and said, Hey, like, let's get a two-year contract. And I was able to negotiate that and Boston right away. They just said, yeah, let's do it after that playoff series. And so, um, yeah, I mean, right before the season I'm in playoffs and it's kind of a cool feeling to know, like my agent saying, all right, we're going to, we're signing here a two-year deal. And just, just you focus on what you're doing, do your thing because it's working. Boston's noticing. So I want to talk a little bit. We've got some sort of fan base questions about fighting that we've always wanted to ask. So first of all, how do you, obviously there's technique to it. If people don't think there is, I think they're crazy. Who is your mentoring? I mean, we've seen video clips, you know, we, we talked to some of the ECHL guys here in Tulsa and, you know, there's always someone kind of giving tips, not that you go to school for this, but how did you learn the finer points of this? Cause there is strategy. You're going to get your face broken. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's the real deal. Like you're throwing bones at a, at an opponent and he's throwing bones at you and bones are really hard, especially the ones on the tips of your knuckles. And um, for me, I just knew that if I had, I was always good at fighting. Like even in junior, I had my first junior fight. I got a tryout and I just, you know, really, really dummied the guy. And, and, and that would follow me throughout my career. I was just always good at fighting. And I, I worked as a youngster in my teenage years on the speed bag in my garage, had a lot of frustration growing up. Uh, you know, with my identity, I was uh, the only person of color in a Northern Wisconsin town. So there was all kinds of issues that came with that. My dad one day brought me a speed bag, nailed it up in there, screwed it into the wall in the garage. And he's like, here you go. And I would just spend hours out there just hitting that speed bag, hearing that rhythm, like hitting that speed bag. And obviously it translated well into punching when I found out that I could actually fight really well. But then you know, then you get to pro hockey and these are guys who are training to fight too. Like everybody's, they train boxing, MMA in the summer. And when I got up to Providence, I was still pretty, pretty rusty in my, and not, I guess, uh, pretty green, I'd say in my, in my fighting. And, and I was fighting the heavyweights now and would do well sometimes, but other times not do well. And, um, I actually, the, the Bruins hired a fighting coach for me. And if you know the movie, huh. you, you know, the movie, the goon, right? So yeah. Of course. Yeah. So Goon is a true story. That's Doug Glatt in that movie. That's actually a true story about a guy named Doug Smith. And Doug Smith is a cop in Boston. So he's in the Boston area and he does fight training, hockey fight training. He's worked with some of the big guns like um, Steve McIntyre. He's trained some big fighters. And so the Bruins hired him my, my first year there uh, to come in, you know, a couple times a month after practice, the, the you know, you, after a practice, they'll have like a skills session, like the defensemen will be working on, one-timers, the centers will be taking face-offs, the wingers will be taking rims on the board, and then Doug Smith would come in and he'd work with me and Tyler Randall, um, kind of my uh, guy, my protege, I guess you'd call him, or the guy who was you know, 10 years younger than me with a, who was in the system to take my spot once I get old. So he would come in and he would work with me and, um, and teach me how to fight. So he, it was awesome. He's an amazing guy and a great encourager, and he fought it. He, he couldn't even play hockey. You know, I think he – he went out on the ice with like a, a sharpened deer antler on one skate and uh, <laughs> a rusty old peanut butter knife on the other and pushed him out there. And, but he was a boxer and he knew how to skate, but he worked on his hockey. He got good at hockey and he ended up fighting his way to the American league. And that was kind of his story, the goon, but the goon, Doug Smith, uh, he taught me how to fight. He became my fight instructor and mentor. And it seems like by the time you, you hit the NHL here, it, the NHL has moved away from sort of the goon 
you know, of the seventies of Dave Schultz, those type of guys. And now it's, you know, you've got to, you've got to produce, you got to put the puck in the net. You got to make smart plays. You got to check. You might have to, uh, you know, shadow. I mean, it's not just, uh, oh, this guy can fight. So therefore let's just put him on the team. Um, I remember here in Tulsa recently, I was talking to, uh, and I don't know if, if he was ever your coach in, in Providence, but we got uh, coach Rob Murray here yep. and, you know, he was a, a checker guy and, and, but he's like, I, I don't want that on my team. You know, I've got guys that if, if it needs to be done and send a message, it's there. If they pick on our players, but I need guys that are going to produce check hard and put the puck in the net and help out the team and not sit in the box and take stupid penalties. So do you feel that that definitely has changed in, in any of the leagues, really. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's always going to be the, the heavyweight and some teams are going to carry a heavyweight fighter. Um, but those heavyweight guys are now, if you're, if the guys like that, they're going to be working with him on his skating and they want him to be able to play a regular shift. Like for me personally, I was, I was a dangerous checker because I was really fast up and down and I was a big guy and I loved to check. So working with the Bruins and, you know, Don Sweeney, who's now the general manager in Boston. He was our general manager in uh, Providence. He was really working with me of, of teaching me how to be a player. And they were bringing in coaches, like they were bringing in the fight coach, but they were bringing in skating coaches and, and Bruce Cassidy was really working with me. And these guys just to see their belief in me and to see, I, I think they saw my potential. So they really worked with me about having me be a, just a player. And they, they would always tell me like, listen, you, you can handle your fighting stuff, but we, you're effective as a player. Like you're going to scare the other team's fighter, but we want you to be able to intimidate every player with your forechecking ability. Right. And so it was just learning that balance of not just going out there and, and fighting. And, and, you know, sometimes I got a little too wrapped up in the fight game, I think, but for me, I just had to, like, I had to be, like I said, I have to be all in. So for me now, going back to the question you asked before, how did I prepare now? It was, it was going in the war zone mentality. I, was, I would work myself into a frenzy, and, and even though I felt that fear, I would, I would try and overcome that fear almost with like a, a craziness and just being like, I'm go, I am fighting today, period. And, and I was looking for that fight, and I was looking for that hit, and that's where I was able to play my best hockey, and I was able to push through that fear. And then usually when I would get that fight early – then I was like, all right, my fight, I got it. And I can just focus on playing. And it just opened up a lot of space for me and brought me a lot of confidence. So, so in, uh, so on the topic of that, then in your honest opinion, in today's NHL, do you still see the significance of fighting in the sport? Or do you think now it may be a little bit unnecessary? I mean, I still, I still see it. And the guys on the ice still see it. I mean, I was just watching some, some clips of, of Curtis McDermott. He's my line mate in Providence was Lane McDermott, a, a real good friend of mine and his little, his baby brother, who's now not a baby anymore. He's like six, five, two forty. He's, he's now fighting in the NHL and, you know, following in his brother's footsteps, but he, you know, I saw him fight the last couple of games right off the face off. And, you know, it's kind of like, what's the point of that? But the, the players see it. There's still that energy there. There's still that intimidation factor there. Whether, you know, the, the question is, is it going to be around much longer? I don't think so. I think you see it, you see the clampdown happening already. And I think that there's just, you know, that was the golden age in hockey where guys could just take off their gloves and punch each other in the face. I think you're going to see it phased out of the game eventually. 
I don't know if it's going to be three years or five years, but I don't see it going past that. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how the game evolves because of it, because there is, there is that element of intimidation, but there is also that element of the code and being and holding your opponent accountable for their actions on the ice. The, the game is allowed to police itself. And that's the real deal. Like that's really happening. And everyone on the bench feels it. The fighters especially feel it. Like I'm going to go out there. If I'm going to take a cheap shot on the captain of the other team, in the back of my head, I'm like, I know I'm going to have to fight this guy. <laughs> and so that's there. And so it's, how do you respond to that? For me, I've, I've been on both sides of that. Like, Oh man, I'm going to have to fight this guy. Like, well, maybe I'll just go 95% all in. But then the other side of me was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to run this captain through the boards and then I'm going to fight this guy too. And, and so it's there, the players know it, the coaches know it. I mean, there's a reason why guys on the team are still employed who fight, you know? So, so you really think that eventually, I mean, fighting will phase out of the NHL completely, or do you just mean continue to keep fizzling, fizzling out less fights? I, I, mean, think it, I think it'll eventually be gone. I mean, you see, you saw the clampdown happen and I'm, I don't know exactly the numbers now, but you saw it happen in junior hockey where they said, well, now there's a 10 fight rule and now there's a five fight rule and a three fight rule. And I don't know what they're at now, like in the OHL, but, and then they, all of a sudden they brought that over to um, the America, the East coast hockey league. Then all of a sudden, I don't know what the American league is now. You guys might have a better idea, but last time I checked, I think there was a 10 fight minimum. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get yeah. started, you start missing games. And like, you know, if you, you, you employ a, a guy who's a hard nosed checker, you want him in the game. All of a sudden he fights and he misses a game. That's not a, a valuable asset to an organization. I think you're going to see that in the NHL. And then, you know, as soon as they put that fight, I mean, I think it was a 10 fight the last time I checked, it might even be five fights now, but th- I you know, think about, it, I had 41 fights one year. And I was trying to fight 30, 25, 30 times a year. That was my goal was to get 25 or 30 fights. And, you know, now if there's a five fight rule and you start getting suspended, you just see, you see which direction it's going, you know, it's, yeah. they yeah. set the precedent and then there, the clampdowns happen. And then, you know, I think in 2013, it was no, now you can't take your helmets off in the fight. And so you see it, you see it phasing out and I don't know where it's going to happen. I, I would guess if I were a betting man, I'd say within five years, there's going to be a rule that says, well, now a fight's not just a five minute major. You get kicked out of the game and suspended and fined. Right. Yeah. I can see that happening as well. So there's a lot of, there's a great YouTube clip out there for our listeners of, of Bobby Robbins chirping away. Um, I think Nesson might've took it out of the Capitals. Well, (laughs) anyway, so obviously there's a lot of chirping going on. So, you're actually going, you hear it all the time. Do you want to go? Do you want to go? And, you know, so you guys are actually communicating in the face-off circle and the boards when you're hitting a, you know, when it's time to drop the gloves or if a guy's going to drop the glove. That's actually a thing, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a thing. It's, it's all communication. Like, you know, you can, if you watch that clip, it's called Bobby Robbins mic'd up. It's pretty intense. And I definitely gave those editors – a run for their money with the number of F words they had to bleep. <laughs> uh, so they earned their paycheck on that day when they edited that video. But yeah, I mean, you can hear it on there. Uh, Lee, uh, Liam O'Brien, he was a rookie, big, tough guy. I love the way he plays. He's, I'm a fan of his now. Always rooting for him to get his, to stick in the NHL. But that was his rookie year, his rookie out of the OHL, I think he came. And he smoked uh, Ben Sexton, my line mate, smoked him. 
I came right over, get, give him a shot and say, Hey, you want to go? He gives a nod and I say, all right, let's go. And boom, our gloves are off and we're fighting. That happens like that. That might happen at a face-off. Like I've had some, some conversations of opening face-off. Hey, Bobby, you got to give me one, man. No, I don't want to fight. I'm not fighting you right now. Come, come on, man. Coach is all over me. He's, he's not going to play me tomorrow. Give me a fight, man. I owe you really? one. All right. All right, buddy. All right, let's go. Drop the gloves. So maybe next game, that guy doesn't want to fight me, but I'm like, buddy, you owe me one. Let's go. So there's a code there. I can, you know, I still remember the guy. I know who it was. He said that to me. Coach is all over me, Bobby, man. I need to do something here. I'm not going to be wow. playing tomorrow. Give me a fight. All right. And I didn't want to coach was like, you know, I think the Bruins were watching. He's like, don't fight until you have to like, don't do the, don't do it off the center ice draw. I'm like, well, there's a code here, you know, I'm going to need to fight someday and it all, what goes around comes around. So you fight that guy and guys are always talking and you fight and you can hear it on that mic'd up video. You, after the fight's done, you say, Hey man, good job. Good job. Yes. So my wife, my wife only wants to ask one question. I promised her I would. So she's watching this and, and she's not new to hockey, but she's newer to hockey since we've been married for almost six years. And she wants to know, she's like, I don't get it. The players are talking to each other. They, a lot of times they know each other. I'm like, yeah, she goes, they, they really go at it. And then as soon as it's done, it seems like they're all either they respect each other or they're going to go out and have a beer afterwards. Yeah. So she wants to ask, how do you just suddenly go from zero to I'm going to knock this guy's head off. But when it's done, it's done. Right. And most people and wonder that too. And you're I mean, fine with it. It's a strange thing, isn't it? <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah. I mean, for me, there, there were times I had to be early when I started fighting. Like when I first got called up to Providence, I was, I had to work myself into a frenzy. Like I would drop the gloves and I would, I would be pictured that this guy was trying to kill me, trying to kill my family and breaking into my house. I'm like, and I'm kind of looking at him and I'm swearing at him and I'm putting myself in this, this mindset. Uh, but as I got more comfortable with fighting and I think there was an element of that fear diminishing where I would just drop the gloves and I was just in that zone, man. I was, I was in the pocket. I was in the zone. I was, I wasn't even looking at the guy. I was like looking at the, the spot right under his chin and it, it almost became like this routine and this art. And I think you see that in mixed martial arts too. You watch the UFC. Those guys aren't all the times like wild maniacs. They're they're calm in there. They're given a, they're given a tap before the fight and it becomes more of just a skill. And then, then when you're in the fight, you know, it starts to ramp up and you're, you're in that war zone. And then there's a huge release of aggression of testosterone of, of crazy new craziness. And, and after 45 seconds, it's done. And then it's just this, a calm feeling. And you're like, Oh, good job, man. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. So what was it like? And I, and Andrew and I remember this because we were, we were big fans. Every Bruins fans were big fans when you played your first NHL game and the local network, Nesson, I think it was, did this whole thing. And it was a great, I mean, it is a great story. It's a great comeback story too, but you're finally at age, what, 32, I think mm -hmm. it was. You, yep. uh, maybe one of the oldest rookies. Yeah, I, what they tell me is, and I, I'll have to find out exactly the stat, but they say the oldest rookie to ever make an NHL opening day roster. And, and I mean, it was just, we were rooting for you. Everybody was. What was it like to finally have that NHL game? And, and I'm talking more behind the scenes stuff. And are there any roles in the NHL locker room? Like, I'm sure you kept quiet. Yes, sir. No, sir. But what was it like to actually play 
for the Bruins and uh, being at the Garden. And what about the locker room? Like, is there any sort of roles that people play in the locker room player wise? Oh yeah. I mean, the Boston Bruins are such a world-class organization. They're a classy organization in the NHL. And I mean, they're an original six team. So you go there and there's so much history. You see all the, the former players and they have, you know, former hall of famers are still hanging around the locker room, like doing the ticket list. So they're, you know, they're employing a lot of their former players and these guys serve as kind of mentors, you know, like almost like a grandfather figure um, are there to mentor these young players. And then uh, just the leadership there, they, you know, big Z is a Dano Chara was the captain when I was there. And I know he has a philosophy that, you know, there aren't really rookies. Like we're all, we make it to the NHL. You're here. You've made it to the dance. Like, let's get on, let's get over the formalities of, Hey man, I'm a, I have this many games and you're a rookie. It's like, all right, let's go. And so he was really awesome. He, he really uh, talked to me quite a bit and really encouraged me and, you know, him being a tough guy too. He knew what I was doing. He knew I was coming in to fight. And so he, he really took me under his wing and, and just guys like him and uh, Patrice Bergeron is another great leader. He's now the captain, but those guys, you know, I was a new guy and they just, you know, they didn't treat me any differently. And I think that just shows what kind of organization they are. And from top to bottom, from management all the way down to their players and their staff, they just care about their players. And, um, and there's just a sense of pride there. You're playing for the Boston Bruins, man, an original six team and playing in the garden, you go to the garden and it's pretty intense. (laughs) So you, you, you take on McQuaid in a, in a exhibition scrimmage game. And uh, in, in my estimation, I don't know you, Andrew, you won that fight. Clearly. And then comes the, um, the Luke Shen fight. And on the Luke Shen fight, I guess this is where, and, and I want to kind of wrap up this and then talk a little bit about FCA, but uh, you, you, you take down and you beat Luke Shen, but somehow you got your bell rung and you get a concussion from that. But I think our, if, if our younger listeners don't know, they need to look up some of these YouTube videos of, I mean, you're taking on the toughest guys in the NHL here, and and you're beating them. So what happened? Clearly, yeah. And what so what happened with the McQuaid thing? Was that more of a McQuaid was giving you the shot to prove yourself, or was that more of a natural hockey situation? You guys getting into it and just dropping the gloves. Yeah, the McQu- the story behind the McQuaid fight is pretty good because he I actually know Adam McQuaid now. He's a he's a pretty outspoken Christian within the hockey faith community. I've been at some. Uh, Christian conferences with him. He's been at some of our FCA events. So we're able to, to go back in that and laugh. And he just retired recently and he's a warrior. And, um, but yeah, I love that guy. And yeah, that, so that, that fight with McQuaid, uh, the lockout had just ended. So I think we were 25 games into the season with the Providence Bruins lockout ends. So I've already had like 10 fights under my belt. I'm in, I'm in mid season form and I'm feeling pretty good. Like I, I have, I got an ax to grind with anybody who's willing to, to dance. And um, we get the call that we're going to be playing against the Boston Bruins. We just played a three and three Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I think we went out, you know, I had, had a buddy come down. We were out late that night and get a call the next morning that says, uh, or a text that says, Hey, we're playing the Boston Bruins tomorrow, uh, Tuesday in the garden. Let's uh, pregame skate at 10 a.m. And I was like, this is what are, we're playing against the Boston Bruins. So the Providence Bruins, the triple A team played against the Boston Bruins in front of 20,000 fans. 
And I was like, all right, we're taking the bus up. I was like, I'm fighting Sean Thornton, center ice, buckets. Oh, up. man. Period. I've come this far. You are crazy if you think I'm not. Like Sean Thornton, and I was, he's a tough guy, man. I was scared of him. Uh, but I was like, I'm fighting him buckets off at center ice. You know, this is my chance. So I was nervous. Like I, I didn't sleep much that night. I was like, all right. And everybody on the, that was the question of the hour. Everybody on the bus, like, Hey, you, you fighting authority. I was like, yeah, you better believe it. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, I'm fighting this guy. who's was a legend. And um, he ended up being a great mentor to me too. And taught me so much about the fight game and uh, later on in the next couple of years, but we went up there and, you know, we, we start getting ready and I'm just jacked up. I'm amped up. I'm like, I'm fighting Sean Thornton. This is happening. Okay. What do I do? Oh man. I'm nervous here. And, uh, Claude Julian comes in the locker room to address our team. And he says, listen, thanks for coming to play us guys. This is going to be exciting. Uh, listen, this is a real game. Like I think they played their first game on Friday. This was a Tuesday. So he says, you know, this is a great tune up game for us. We need to be ready. It's a real game, full contact, like play it like a real game, guys. Go out there and battle hard. And he says, last thing, he kind of peeks over at me. He says, no fighting out there, right, guys? Just real game but no fighting. And he gives me a look, and I was like, part of me, I mean, I'll, honestly, all of me was like, yes. Oh, <laughs> thank God, I don't have to fight Thornton. And so I was like, all right, you know what? My best, when I played my best hockey when I did, was when I didn't think about fighting. I was just like, I was a I'm just going to be free out here with no fear and just be a, a robot and, you know, smash guys and take the puck to the net, not worrying about that other stuff. So that's the mentality I had. I was like, yes, no fighting, no pressure. Like, let's go. And we went out there and play. I played a great game. We ended up beating the Bruins. For those who don't know, we beat the Boston wow. Bruins six nice. to four, which was pretty awesome. We did like the stick salute, the Providence Bruins. who just beat the Boston Bruins. So the 20,000 <laughs> fans last shift of the game, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of to get chippy out there. I think I got in a little shoving match with Chara in front of the net and Thornton was in there too. And I'll never forget Thornton just kind of looked at me like just cool as a cucumber. He's like, it's not that kind of game, Robin, settle down, settle down, <laughs> not that kind of game. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget that. But then um, last shift of the game, it kind of gets chippy. McQuaid gives my line mate a shot. Next thing I know, I just kind of come in there and give him a shot. And McQuaid, he doesn't mess around. He, somebody, you give him a shot. He comes back instantly with a cross check to my head. You know? <laughs> and, and so like instinct just takes over before we know we're in a fight. And, you know, he threw a couple of uh, big haymakers that I was able to dodge. And I was kind of peppering him with a few punches and I came over the top and I popped him right in the, right in the head and dropped him, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. And then so there was a, there was a buzz and people were like, Oh, who's this minor league guy who did this? They're going to send him. He's going to get shipped down to single a in Tallahassee. Like he's out of here. <laughs> and, uh, and, but the Bruins loved it. I heard, I heard through the grapevine, the grapevine that the brass, you know, the upper management loved it, you know, Don Sweeney and Cam Neely, of course, he loves that kind of hockey. And so that was just another, another piece of the puzzle that led to me becoming a Bruin and, one of those moments in time that that would just happened. Like, I know now it was all God's timing, but uh, at that point in my life, I was just like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Well, I was about to say, so Claude Julian didn't come in the locker room after the game and go, Bobby said not to fight, man. <laughs> exactly. No, they loved it. They probably knew I was going to want to fight Thornton at center ice and I would have got knocked out by that guy. So they, well, that's probably and, why they said it. And it, and it didn't look, it didn't look like a premeditated 
you know, scuffle. It just looked like it just organically happened. Tempers, you know, like you said, it get a little chippy out there. And it wasn't like, hey, hey, can you give me this one? You know, uh, did he say anything afterwards or did he just be like, OK, whatever. I gave this kid a little bit of a boost. I, I don't remember what happened after. I don't even know if there was a, a good job, but I think there was like there's a pile up and usually in a pile up, the, the fight stops and both guys kind of give up and give. All right. Good job. Good job. And then and then you go your separate ways. But it's funny, just, you know, 10 years later, we were able to meet finally at some camps and conferences and be able to talk about it. And um, it's cool to be able to talk the fight game as well as to talk about the faith game as well with a guy like that who's who's one of the guys in the NHL is known to be pretty strong in his Christian faith. So you take down Luke Shen in this fight, but you end up with a concussion that kind of ended ended your career. So to, I mean, I'm kind of just going by what I could find online. Yeah, it was, it was a weird thing. I I don't know if it was that fight exactly. I remember getting in that fight that I told you about with Liam O'Brien. I got He uh, falls down on his back. He kind of shoots up and clips me in the chin after the fight was done. And being a fighter, you just always are concussed, I think. And so you always get your bell rung. You take shots in the head. And I was just like, all right, yeah, I'm fine. I, I had my ways of dealing with it. I had some pills I would take. And, you know, you take a Tylenol, you take some nootropics. And uh, I called them my brain pills. And I, I'd go on to fight another day and came into that first game. I got smoked my first shift by Ronaldo, kind of got my bell rung, got hit in that fight and played that. You know, I, I was fine. I was like, I'm, I'm fine. I got my bell rung. I'm, I'm all right. Didn't get knocked out. Played the next night in Detroit, and that's when I realized that the, the concussion was kind of lingering around and took a couple of shots that night and just kept trying to play through it. So now I'm now when I work with young players, I'm like, if you get a concussion, if you get your bell rung, you got to say something to somebody. And, you know, it was a tough lesson to learn. I just kept playing through it and ended up taking a pretty big hit my third game up high uh, in the chin. And it was just never after that. It never really was the same. And and tried to play two more games in Providence, but you know, the concussion symptoms were there. And uh, when I finally told the trainers, they're like, all right, I sit it out here. And it just never went away for about a year, the post-concussion syndrome. And what is that is I, I have no idea what that syndrome is. Yeah. Post-concussion syndrome. It, it encompasses a bunch of things. It's when your brain takes a shot, you know, there's, there's bruising on the brain, there's damage that happens. And that's why if, if guys get a concussion, even if it's getting your bell rung, you should, you should say something. Because the, the shots that happen after a concussion, you know, if you take a second shot or a third shot or a fourth and a fifth, these things, it compounds the effect of the concussion. So even if they're not big shots, like these, you know, a huge blow that knocks you out, it's doing damage. And, uh, you know, post-concussion syndrome is, you know, light sensitivity, headaches, nausea, and that leads to uh, mental problems, mental issues of depression, and that's where kind of the road that I went down was depression and suicidality. And it causes all kinds of emotional changes. And, you know, by the time I kind of came to, I was just in a really, really rough spot and had returned quickly to drugs and alcohol to just to numb that over. And uh, man, that was a, a, a new fight that I had entered in as soon as, you know, the hockey career was over. It, it happened pretty quick. I went from the top of the world all of a sudden I'm in the bottom of a pit and I got post-concussion syndrome and depression, suicide, and all these mental problems that I'm dealing with. And I'm, I'm dealing with them through drugs and alcohol now. And uh, it was just a downward, uh, downward spiral into this pit that I was in. 
And so, Bobby, I know that we are running out of time right now. So before um, we, we conclude today's episode, we did uh, want to get some information from you and especially for the listeners to hear about um, FCA hockey as well, because that's your new full-time job. So new to Andrew and I, just being hockey fans, mm-hmm. you know, and talking to Ian and, and talking to you and Ian t- telling us a couple stories about some other um, former hockey players, it, it seems like it's it's a similar story. You you get it, you start your hockey career, you do a lot of dumb things. Um, and somewhere along the line, you get to this rock bottom. And like you said, you looked up with Ian, it was it was a similar situation of kind of turning it over to 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 God and saying, you know, help me out here. And and when that happens, this transformation happens with your spirituality. And all of a sudden things start going good when you start doing good things and good things to others. So tell us a little bit about that with the remaining time we have and talk about FCA hockey, something we didn't know about. Yeah. So, I mean, I was in that pit, I was in that dark place and I was just, I was like, what is going on? My life's over. And I, I had no identity. I identified myself as a hockey fighter. Like that was how, that was how I spent all my days planning my fight, planning my future, I made it to the NHL. I was like, all right, here's my destiny. And to get the, just the rug pulled out from under me and to have that big fall, I was just dead, man. I was walking dead and, you know, wanted to die, but realized that I was really dead spiritually on the inside. And that's when I picked up a Bible for the first time. And um, I started reading it for myself and I heard the gospel and we talk about my 316 penalty minutes. Like that was a defining moment that 316 well i that's a that's a significant number because then i read john 316 which says for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life i heard the gospel about this guy jesus who was god in the flesh who came and took all my sin on the cross and rose from the dead and he takes my sin and i get his righteousness if i believe in him and man i throughout this process in that pit that I was in, God was really showing me how broken I was. Like I was a pro athlete. I was in the media. I was shaking the mayor's hand and kissing babies and signing autographs and male athlete of the year, student athlete of the year, all these trophies. But inside I was dead. I was so spiritually bankrupt and I was steeped in sin, all kinds of sexual sin and addictions. And that's really who I was. I was, I was the opposite of godly, even if the world adored me. And I finally saw myself and my, I saw my need for a savior and I just called out to Jesus and he saved me, saved me from my sin, saved me from the reality of hell. And, and he made me a new creation in 2016. Things started to change. I was like, Whoa, this is my identity. I'm not a hockey fighter. I'm not this. I'm not, I'm not the ex hockey player. Who's, who's addicted to drugs and depressed. And no, that's not my identity. I'm a child of God. I'm an adopted son of God. And so he just took over my life. And I said, all right, God, like I got, I got nothing left in me. Like I, the best I have, the best that I could figure out was I'll just go punch people in the face and make it get rich and famous. I was like, what do you got for me, God? Do you have a better plan for me? And so I just turned my life over to God and really started reading his word and, and, you know, hearing more about him. And, and he, like I said, I'm an all in kind of guy. So I really got into the Bible and I, I got, uh, you know, he matured me and my faith pretty quickly within a year or two and called me right into ministry. So I got called into ministry with FCA hockey. It's a fellowship of Christian athletes, hockey, basically FCA is a worldwide organization that um, impacts coaches and players for Jesus Christ. And we are specific to the hockey world. I was like, what better fit 
to combine faith and hockey. And so I, you know, I came out here to Alexander, Minnesota. This is the national headquarters for FCA hockey. And so we have, we have camps literally from every age, from young kids all the way up to pros. You know, I run a pro college camp. I direct here in Alexandria every summer. And so I work camps with all these kids. We have a school here called the North Star Christian Academy. It's a high-end hockey training academy that's like really Christian. We're, we're really teaching what it means to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. And to be able to impact 48 kids every day to find out where they're at in their faith walk. And all these difficult things I went through, drugs, you know, sin, sexual sin, the party, concussion, injury, perseverance, all these themes in my life that I was just like, I was just on these waves up and down throughout my whole life. Like, why is this happening to me? Now I realize that it was all part of God's bigger picture for me because I'm able to now mentor these young players and disciple them and, and be there as a resource for them. You know, if a kid comes to me struggling with weed, you know, he's not going to come to a guidance counselor or a teacher, but now I'm at a school where a kid can come up to me who's like, man, I'm struggling with weed or I'm struggling with pornography. This is what I'm struggling with. And there's that genuine conversation happening of being like, man, I've been there and I'm going to, I'm going to show you what God's done in my life. And it's not relying on your strength or my strength throughout my whole career. I was like, I got this. I'm so strong. I'm so tough. I'm the toughest fighter in the world. I was really relying on my strength. And I found out that my, my strongest strength is really just weakness. And so now I'm living my life depending on God's strength working in me and to just see the fruit that comes from that in my life. It, it just really confirms the reality of God and the reality of what Jesus has done in my life to transform me. And it seems like with some of the stories of guys your age, when you started out in your hockey career, that this is a needed guidance and it has to come from, like you said, the hockey world rather than guidance counselors or anybody else, because it does seem like a lot of young players and I don't know what it is. I'm not part of that community of you get lost maybe with the heavy training you do or whatever, but you don't have that spiritual guidance or maybe moral guidance or whatever it might be. Just say, stay away from this, this, and that. And a lot of players get trapped into those things and this sounds like something that is much needed with young players. Oh, for sure. I mean, there's a culture, there's a hockey culture that's very godless and dark. And it's, it's everything that the world offers. It's conquest and sex, drugs, rock and roll. There's a big element of that in the hockey culture. And I lived it and so many people live it. But we're saying, man, there, that's the world's culture, what the world's offering you. We're saying there, there's a different culture that's growing right now. And it's not... I'm a, I'm a hockey player. That's who I am. It's not even, you know, I'm a hockey player and I just so happen to be a Christian. It's I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of, of Christ. I'm a child of God who just so happens to be blessed to be able to play hockey. So what am I going to do with that? How am I going to glorify God with it? And how am I going to be a signpost to point my teammates, my coaches, the fans to that reality? Cause everybody needs that. It's the one thing that everybody needs. And uh, it's just, it's pretty amazing to see it it happening in the hockey world and to be a part of it. You know, I, and like you said, I, I run this pro call and I have, I have pro guys in the NHL and in the minor leagues on my call. And a guy said, he's like, he's like, I, I would never go to talk to a pastor. He's like, they'll never understand, but he's like, this call has changed my life. This ministry FCA hockey has changed my life because he's dealing with an injury now that five months ago, if that would have happened, he would have, he would have just written off God completely. He'd say, God, 
I hate you. Why are you doing this to me? I'm never following you. But now he's like, wow, God, what are you teaching me through this? Help me through this. And then just to see that happen, that's one life that's being transformed. And that's how this works. It's one life that transforms one life and it trickles out. This all started from, you know, one life, Jesus Christ raising from the dead and tw his 12 followers going out and spreading this message of salvation into the world. And now look at, we're talking about it 2000 years later, and it's still just as relevant and even more relevant with the way that the world is going now, which is all, you know, the Bible says exactly what's happening is happening. So I'll, I'll end with this because we, we are out of time. You want to be respectful with your time. So you personally, taking aside the whole hockey career, not the hockey side of it, but just the whole career and everything else, do you feel personally that now that sort of the cobwebs are clear, um, you're a lot more you know, mature than you were as a kid, where you ended up now of being a disciple of Christ and doing it through hockey, is this kind of the epiphany when you say, this is actually where my life, and it, it ended up exactly where it should end up, meaning like this is where you should have ended up and you made it. When I was five years old, I was six years old, seven years old. I knew that my destiny was to play in the NHL. I knew it. Like I'm destined to play in the NHL. And I carried that with me my whole life. And I was right. I was destined to play in the NHL, but I didn't see the bigger picture of it. I thought it was for me, for my glory, for fame and riches. I was destined to play in the NHL because God gave me a story and a testimony that now I can go into any locker room. My story, I can put on my Boston Bruins jersey, and I can go into a locker room of a high school team and tell my story where these 20 kids are going to listen to me, and I'm going to be able to tell them about the reality of Jesus, that he died for sinners like us and rose from the dead and offers salvation and forgiveness of sin and everlasting life. That was all God's plan to use me. It, and now reading the Bible, I know that he had that plan before the world was even created for me and to just to, to have good works for him. And so that question of, uh, you know, was it my destiny? Yeah, it was my destiny, but I didn't see how it, how it was supposed to be. There's times where I was like, man, I wish I could go back knowing what I know now. I wish I could go back as a Christian, but now that's not my role. My role is to train up these 15, 16, 17, 18 year old hockey players who are going off and signing D1 contracts now for when they go to their team, they're going to have some conversations with their teammates. Nobody ever, no one ever once told me about Jesus when I was, I played 500 pro games, played hockey my whole life. Nobody ever, not one teammate ever told me that I needed him and never even told me about him. And so uh, it's easy to be in the hockey world and to just chase that dream and hockey can become an idol in our lives. And that's, that's really our God, but man, there is a real God and you can know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And that was all his plan for me. And so I'm grateful for the hard times, those difficult times, they made me stronger and they made it. And I work with, with guys who are going through concussions and suicide thoughts and, and depression. And I'm like, man, I know where you're at because before that I would have said, suck it up, buddy. Come on, put a smile on and go get out there and suck it up. But now I'm like, whoa, I know where you're at, man. And I'm going to tell you about the strength that exists that's outside of yourself that you can depend on and that you need to depend on. So it's, I feel really blessed to be in this position. And all I know is, is uh, God is good. And, and the only good in me is the God in me. So I'm um, just, just blessed to be able to, to spread this message. And FCA hockey has been a great resource. And if you, anybody listening, want to set, come to send your kids to our camps, 
check it out. You can go to fcahockey.org. We have all kinds of stuff on there. And if you want to follow me, it's at Bobby Robbins Pro, bobbyrobbins.com. You know, shoot me a message if you want to talk more about this stuff. I love interacting with people and helping them in their faith in Hockey Walk. Bobby, we can't thank you enough. This has been a, a great interview. Hopefully you had a good time with us. Um, we're amateurs, but, but we try. We're just fans that, that love um, not just hockey, but the hockey culture. So this is exactly what we were hoping to uh, get out of former players and active players. So we can't thank you enough for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much, Bobby. Yeah, I appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. And we'll look forward to, to chapter two here one of these days. But Absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to have you guys. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to have you on again here. And we know that our lists are going to appreciate it. And Bobby, if you just stay on one minute, we're just going to pause this, take a quick break. We're just going to say goodbye to you. So Sounds hang good. right on. So what do you think, Andrew? Great guest, Bobby Robbins, Boston yeah. Bruins, Providence Bruins. What a great interview. Yeah, what a great story, too. I mean, the it really goes to show um, to anybody that if you just stop making excuses and, um, you know, everybody's got a lot going on in their lives and, you know, we can, we should never be comparing problems and everything, but you could just see from his struggles and everything. He didn't give up. He kept it going and he, he, he made his dream of playing in the NHL. And I think that that's a story that should resonate with everybody. Well, and I think more on a personal level, like he was talking about towards the end here of, of how, you know, him finding uh, Jesus Christ and, and being a, a disciple, something we don't talk about a lot because ours is more of a hockey podcast, but it seems like he's uh, his whole journey led up to where he's at right now and doing what he's doing, like he said. And uh, it seems to be a common theme. That's what happened with uh, Ian Kessrich last week. And, uh, you know, definitely something to look into. And again, if listeners out there are looking for a good, solid, uh, moral Christian training with, you know, these pros, definitely look into the FCA hockey program. Yep. And, um, you know, and if you're out there in your life and you're not where you want to be, um, you know, I'm sure that, you, like Bobby said, you can contact him, you can contact others, and uh, maybe you can you know, find yourself uh, the spiritual growth that, that you need, but on a hockey standpoint, boy, those fights that uh, we, I, we didn't get through all the questions, but we'll have hopefully Bobby back on again. Uh, but it was nice to hear some of those, you know, fighting stories. What a tough guy. Oh yeah, absolutely. And um, it's crazy to hear, you know, I mean, you see how he, he acts I mean, he's so animalistic out in the ice, especially during that Bruins mic'd up and well, he's saying, I'm, I'm scared, you know, I mean, these guys don't like to do the job, but so what, what the listeners don't know is, you know, we're doing this via zoom right now. So we actually, you know, they can see us on video and we see them and, you know, just before the interview starts, you know, Bobby's getting all hyped up and he's stretching. I mean, he was really kind of getting in the zone and uh, I could only imagine if he was preparing to get out there and have to drop the gloves, you know, yeah, I could definitely see a little bit of that warrior mentality he was talking about. So, yeah. well, in that mentality of, you know, he's like, you know, I fought like my life depended on it wasn't just I'm doing my job. I mean, he was trying so hard. I mean, he was really good. And, and, and let's face it, he was a great checker. He wasn't just a fighter, even right. though he kind of, you know, my impression was, you know, he was kind of relying on that fighting thing. But no, you don't get to that level. You don't get to the AHL level just being a. A, a goon there's there are no more goons and you have to skate you have to check you have to you have to you know have some production on the score sheet and and he did that and it seems like his career kind of ended right when it he was at the peak 
which is which is a shame. But I'm so happy that uh, things ended up well for him because I think a lot of the Providence Bruins fans that listen to us um, might be wondering whatever happened to Bobby Robbins. Yeah. We posted something on Twitter, and everybody, you know, do you remember Bobby Robbins? Everybody's, oh yeah, yeah. What's you know what's he doing now? So hopefully this interview will help out. So we're about an hour fifteen. So I think we're going to call it here today. We appreciate. Everybody tuning into this episode of we've, of course, been very excited for this and talking with Bobby. And we, of course, once again, appreciate um, him taking the time out of his day to talk with us. And we hope that, uh, you know, his story resonates with others, especially if there are others struggling. I know that the hashtag Bell Let's Talk has been very important in the hockey community with mental health and um, whether or not you're you're into the Christian faith or anything like that. I think that there's still some things you can take away from. Uh, this interview and and uh, I, th- I thought it was overall great. So we appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, Dad, do you have any last minute comments? No, just that you know, as as we get to have you know our guests, which are, have been great. We'll hopefully get a lot more. You know, I mean, we were a bit starstruck. You know, having Bobby Robbins here for the you know, I mean, the actual NHL player, and we remember Bobby playing that opening night with the Bruins, and uh, but you know talking to them they're just real good human beings mm-hmm. and you know as we see them sitting on a couch watching a game that's how we see them um but they're just really nice great human beings that have the same issues and struggles that we do if not more based on you know different situations that they find themselves in so uh, this is really being an uplifting interview for me and i i just I think it's great. Please go ahead and give us a like uh, whenever you can. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Transistor. I mean, any medium here, Black and Gold takes care of us and helps us with the uh, distribution. And give us a a like and help us, uh, you know, share this interview. And that'll help our podcast. And it'll definitely help us to get more guests on. That'll be entertaining for you. And I think we'll leave it at that. Well, we are recording on a Friday. I hope everybody has a wonderful Friday and a wonderful weekend. We hope you enjoyed uh, Lindroth Hockey Podcast episode 15. 15. Thank you guys very much. Have a wonderful weekend.